0: Hi, it's Mike Morse. Welcome to another episode of Open Mike. I have some sun on me today. As you can see, it's a beautiful sunny day here in Detroit, Michigan. We are talking today to somebody in Phoenix, Arizona at the Arizona State University. You all know that I went to University of Arizona, so there's some rivalry going on here. Dr. John Gould is the professor and director of the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University. He's an author, he's done lots of cool things, um, trying to help this country with wrongful convictions and exonerations. And I thought he would be a perfect person to continue the discussion as to what is going on here in America and how do we fix our broken criminal justice system. So let's bring on John. To tell us about all of this stuff, you never know who you're going to see. Be one guy, one on one, my whole career. What you're going to hear. Not got a lot of
1: desperate people in the city,
0: or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime, that's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts.
1: Good morning. How are you? Hi, John, in your Harvard sweatshirt. Well, we got to get the law school and got to get the alma mater in there a little bit. So you
0: went to you went to University of Michigan undergrad, Harvard Law School. And you went. You got. You got. Uh, you got a master's from Harvard, and uh, and something at University of Chicago. I mean,
1: PhD, I mean, and I can still walk and chew gum at the same time.
0: I mean, what an impressive uh, resume! You might well, be the first guy I've had on the show yet. <laughs>
1: I see. My mother's press release got to you
0: except for the ASU part. I mean, no, i just kidding. Uh, ASU is a great, great university. You didn't actually go to school there, you work there now.
1: Right, I've been at the, uh, the Arizona State University since January.
0: And where were you before that?
1: I was at American University for a decade before that. I was at George Mason University for about a decade before that. And in the midst of all of that, I've gone in and out of the National Institute of Justice and the US Department of Justice.
0: Wow. So quite a diverse background. Yes. So your book, The Innocence Commission, Preventing Wrongful Convictions and Restoring the Criminal Justice System, was recently named an outstanding academic title by the American Library Association. So tell us why you wrote this book and what you discovered along this journey. The book
1: is actually a compilation of something that we did in the late uh, first decade of the 21st century. So in Virginia, we had had a number of, uh, Virginia, which is where I was living at the time, we'd had a number of exonerations of defendants who had been convicted and were factually innocent. Indeed, people may know about one of the cases of uh, Earl Washington Jr. who was on death row and came within days of being executed before he was finally exonerated. And there had been a number of people who had represented these defendants. Uh, There'd been a lot of advocacy, but what had not been done was a study or an understanding of what the sources were that had led to the wrongful convictions. So along with a few others, we created a nonprofit group. It was the Innocence Commission for Virginia. This was a collaboration between the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, the Constitution Project, and George Mason University. We got 11 law firms to give us over over $50,000 in pro bono time. That's free time to investigate these 11 cases, to figure out what had gone wrong in these cases, what were the commonalities between them, and then what things could be done to prevent the wrongful convictions. That then lead led to a a larger report to some reform in Virginia, and that becomes the basis for the book, The Innocence Commission. Since then, I've stayed very involved in this work in uh, 2010 and later, I had a large grant from the National Institute of Justice, that's the research arm for the U.S. Department of Justice, to study wrongful convictions. And in this case, we compared wrongful convictions to a control group. That means uh, another set that are similar but have a different outcome. Those were what we called near misses. Those are cases where an innocent defendant gets indicted but then does not get convicted. So... We're able to say a little bit more about what the sources are that actually lead to the conviction of the innocent. And it's really been quite a movement that we've seen across the United States over the last decade as more and more people become interested in this issue. And we see more measures adopted in states to prevent wrongful convictions.
0: So you just brought up an interesting point. You know, I just we did a podcast recently with uh, the director of the Michigan, I'm sorry, the, the Midwest Innocence Project and the, the MacArthur Center for Justice. And we were talking about this groundswell of exposing the wrongful con, convictions. In your opinion, how important is it to expose what's going on um, to try to give our, our country some confidence in our criminal justice system? But, but w- w- how important is it?
1: So it was very, very important at the beginning, and I still think it's important now. So most of us are raised with the expectation, the assumption, that the criminal justice system works as advertised, that the guilty are caught and convicted, that the innocent are identified and they are let go. And indeed, I think the criminal justice system works a whole lot more often than it does not. I depends on estimates, you can say potentially over 90% of the time it works, but that does mean that in a lot of situations it doesn't. And the only way that we are going to be able to come up with solutions is for the public to appreciate where it goes wrong, because we need that understanding of mistakes for there to be any support for the kinds of measures to prevent the wrongful convictions. So- uh, the, the groups that you talked to, they really were some of the leaders in identifying those cases.
0: So what are some of the most common reasons for innocent people going to prison?
1: So some of the most common reasons are eyewitness identification errors. These are situations in which someone yeah. thinks that they saw a defendant. And, and most of the times, these are honest mistakes. These are people who th- are fairly certain that when they're pointing the finger, at a suspect that that's the right guy. And in fact, they're wrong. And they're wrong for a number of psychological um, uh, bases that have any of us in certain circumstances just not appreciating exactly what we're saying or seeing and making mistakes in the identification. That is, that's a commonality. Uh, Another common factor is poor defense lawyering. That is unfortunately the scourge of our criminal justice system where defendants simply do not get the kind of representation that they ought to. In our study, the one that we did, one of the things that we found was actually cases that didn't have, um, didn't have very strong evidence from the prosecution led to wrongful convictions. Now that one kind of is um, counterintuitive because you would think, well, if there's not really strong evidence, that would be identified early and as a result would be thrown out of the system. And what we found instead is what happens is that these cases languish on prosecutors' desks as they wait for more evidence to come in. And at the end, what the prosecutors do is they just take it to a grand jury. The grand jury ends up indicting. And once the case gets into court, juries are much more likely to believe that the defendant is there because he's guilty. Sometimes defendants actually plead guilty to cases where they didn't do it. Other times, juries will convict. these are some of the, the the predominant reasons we've seen. Others have seen issues of false confessions, of misconduct by police and prosecutors, uh, forensic problems with forensic testing and forensic evidence. There are multiple problems here that lead the innocent to be convicted.
0: Are you seeing now that these are these have been identified? And I've read several studies listing the the three or four you know, the bad identification, the jailhouse snitches prosecutorial misconduct and on and on. And these have now been known for, I mean, it feels like almost a decade now that there's been, you know, you mentioned that, you know, are you seeing it get better? Do you think it's getting better?
1: So here's the hard thing to say. We don't really know. Here's one area where I'm positive things have gotten better. So one of the things that was identified very early in the study of wrongful convictions convictions it's problems with biological evidence. So back before we had DNA, people would use um, fingerprint analysis that was sometimes faulty. They would use um, blood testing that wasn't DNA, other sorts of biological evidence that just isn't as strong, hair comparison analysis, for example. As DNA has gotten on the scene, and as it is used earlier in investigations, we're fairly certain that some of the cases that had bad biological evidence involved are being sifted out early. But as a result, some of the other insidious problems are still there and we're not as able to identify them. And what makes this even more troubling is in most of the cases, at least that I studied, this, isn't an, this is not intentional error. So we know, I think the public may know some of the cases out of, say, Chicago, or Houston, Texas, or Los Angeles, where there is a police officer, a detective, or sometimes even a forensic scientist who is fairly certain the defendant's innocent but railroads the person through. And we think of that as kind of being the case of the week story. That's not the vast majority of these cases. Most of the time, it is people of goodwill making understandable mistakes. And because these are understandable mistakes, because uh, this is tunnel vision, where someone just gets attached to a case and, it, and they continue it through, these are much much harder to root out, and they are much much harder to prevent.
0: Interesting. So that's so. This is a different tack than You know, we've done probably ten episodes um, on on wrongful convictions, and it seems like the ones that we dive deep into, it's intentional. It's it's a prosecutor, it's a cop or a detective, you know, doing a bad lineup. We just did a show where the lineup was the 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 the, uh, person accused plus two relatives, plus a fourth person. Or we've had people uh, prosecutors in the room won't write their name on a piece of paper showing they were there and helping lead it. So we've seen lots of intentional identification problems. You're saying though the, the majority of the misidentification. Bad identification, wrongful convictions are not intentional. Exactly,
1: and and let, let's think about why it is that the other ones get attention. They're great drama. They they make terrific movies, and they happen to be true. And we have a good guy and a bad guy. But let me give you an example of one of these cases that I'm talking about, where it's not intentional misbehavior. So there's a case where a defendant is entering a house to steal a TV. At the same time, in another room, a young girl is being raped and murdered. That's being done by a different defendant. There is an eyewitness who sees the guy, uh, the, the guy who's innocent of the rape and murder, leave the house and identifies him being there at a particular time. And in fact, his fingerprints are found in the house. And the police, understandably, start to focus on him as not only being the guy who is responsible for the theft of the television, but also the rape and murder of the girl in the other room. He is not tied to the rape and murder by biological evidence, but the investigators, because of tunnel vision, get attached to the idea that he must be the guy because he was seen by an eyewitness leaving the house, and there's fingerprint evidence that he was there. So I think any of us would look at that case and immediately begin to think of him as the suspect. Once you start getting attached to someone as a suspect, it gets harder and harder to dis- abuse yourself of that conclusion as additional evidence comes forward that challenges that. Well, all right. So the, you know, here's the investigator's thought. Maybe the biological evidence doesn't fully tie him to it because there was another co-defendant there with him. Or this is for DNA evidence. So maybe it's simply that we didn't have very good biological evidence. It's not a you know it's not a match, but it doesn't mean it's not a. Um, it's, sorry, the evidence doesn't match it, but it doesn't mean that it couldn't match it. So I think any one of us in a situation like that might think of this guy as the as as the guy, and hold on to that. So those are the kinds of things we see where tunnel vision occurs or. There's another case that I can think out of Virginia where an older woman is sitting at a window looking down at a street light as a guy walks past and identifies a a suspect as the defendant. Turns out it's not the guy. She's not trying to misidentify him. She's just has a really bad angle on him at night. And police take her uh, identification. And run with it so it's cases like that that are much much more common in the wrongful conviction world than the intentional uh, railroading of the innocent defendant
0: you so, so okay I get it and, and you're right and that just takes good lawyering and good defense attorneys to prove that it was a misidentification I think but I think in, and I'm glad you know we're talking about this professor because um, it's a good point. You know, there, there's what person I mean, the the I'd say the based on what you're telling me, the vast majority is probably non intentional bad misidentification. Well, it's not you just know?
1: misidentification; it's and it's a number of other things, including um, the false confessions, uh, bad forensic testing. Yes, I was just focusing on the one. Okay, so yes, but but the, here's the thing: you know, you you immediately went to bad lawyering, absolutely bad lawyering in a n- number of these. But really, the people who can stop that rush to the indictment and uh, continue to take it to trial are police and prosecutors. And one of the things that we have been pushing for for years is training police and prosecutors in how this process of tunnel vision occurs and having a devil's advocate there in prosecutors' offices. Indeed, having much more seasoned prosecutors as the ones who make the charging decisions because what we've seen is they are much more likely to be able to sift out the good cases from the bad cases. I'm not saying police and prosecutors are the bad guys here. What I am saying is that they are just like the rest of us, susceptible to a number of the problems that lead cases to go from the wrongful identification to the prosecution, and they're the ones who have the first opportunity to stop that route.
0: Good point. So what, so let's talk about the near miss study. It was a three-year study uh, that identified 10 statistically significant factors that distinguish a wrongful conviction from a near miss. You already defined what a near miss is. Um, and I'll just, I'm going to say it again and I have it written here. It's a near miss is, is a case in which an innocent defendant was acquitted or had charges dismissed before trial. Um so tell me what, it's, it's a confusing concept a little bit. Tell me about the highlights of the study and, and, and why was it, you know, what were the important findings?
1: So here's the idea. Um, let's just think of, um, I'll give you an analogy out of cancer research. So if we are only looking at people who have cancer and we're asking what things do they have in common, what we have then is something called a correlate. All right. So maybe people smoked or they ate fatty foods, or maybe they all traveled to South Carolina. Those are all what we would call correlates. We don't know that they're causes until we can separate out the people who have cancer from the people who don't have cancer. And we can see what's specific to people in one set versus the other. The same thing is true when we think about wrongful convictions. Most of the research that had been done up until we did this study only looked at the wrongful conviction cases. And we say, oh, well, in a lot of these cases, there, was eyewitness, there were problems with false confessions. There were problems with eyewitness identifications. There were problems with bad lawyering. And the mistake, I think, is to look at that and say, oh, those are causes. Those are correlates. Why are they correlates? Because some of those factors are found in cases that are not wrongful convictions. Anyone who has practiced criminal law knows that there is unfortunately under-resourced and thus overloaded defense lawyers representing most of the indigents. Now, is that a cause of wrongful conviction or is that a correlate because people, on whether they're innocent or not, ha- face that same problem? So what we were trying to do was separate out the wrongful convictions from other cases where someone's innocent. Another way to think about this is we were comparing cases in which the system gets it wrong versus cases where the system gets it right. What does it mean for us, for the system to get it right? It means that somewhere between arrest and indictment and conviction, the innocent are identified and they are not convicted. Now, could someone have looked at this earlier in the process, like between people are arrested and indicted, sure, but our point our cut point was the innocent come in, they get indicted, but then they get identified and off they go out of the system versus the innocent come in, they get indicted and they get convicted. So what we found, we, you and I have already talked about a number of these things that we've identified, problems with eyewitness identification, with poor lawyering, with um, uh, uh, snitches with uh, bad forensic evidence, uh, with weak facts the prosecution has. But I think one of the most interesting things that we found was that the things that get you into the system that don't necessarily um, get you convicted are the false confessions. And false confessions have been usually associated with wrongful convictions. And what our study is saying is that's one of the things that gets you into the system but a false confession isn't necessarily one of the things that leads to the wrongful conviction.
0: I don't understand that last point. Okay. So that, that's So, confusing me. so I'm, I'm thinking like of the Devonte Sanford case. Are you familiar with that case? It's a pretty famous case out a Michigan 14 year old boy wrongfully confessed because they had prosecutors and the police were going to say, we're going to charge your mom with something, blah, blah, blah. I don't get how that I'm confused with what- All right, so,
1: so a false confession, someone says, hey, I did it. And, and of course, it never comes out that way. But someone who says, I did it. Well, of course, that person's going to get arrested, and they're going to get indicted for the crime. So now the question becomes, does that lead to the wrongful conviction? Or does something else happen between the indictment and the point where they would be convicted so that they get pushed out of the system where the where the mistake gets identified. Now, there are going to be certain cases where they end up getting convicted, but what our study is showing is that more often than not, when there is the false confession, someone is able to find, figure out that that actually isn't what happened, and those cases get weeded out of the system. That's an, I guess that's the way to think about it a false conviction so excuse me a false confession gets you arrested and indicted but it does not necessarily lead on its own to the wrongful conviction because oftentimes those can be weeded out do they still end up getting convicted absolutely but what our study is showing when you compare the near misses to the wrongful convictions is the false confession cases can be a de- the Problem can be identified sometime between indictment and trial, such that these people can be weeded out of the system.
0: Fascinating. So, tell me, what's the second? What's the second biggest point you took out of your study?
1: Second biggest point is that these are a um, these are a combination of errors. It's almost like a perfect storm. It's almost uh, always some combination of these. So, for example, what we found is most often it's tunnel vision, it's poor defense lawyering, and then it's these weak facts. Those three things combined, and actually one other thing, those would be Brady violations. So Brady violations being where the state police or prosecutors are in uh, possession of uh, exculpatory evidence. That's evidence that would show the defendant didn't do it. They are required to turn it over under a Supreme Court case. They don't turn it over. So it's that perfect storm of Brady evidence that's not turned over, exculpatory evidence that's not turned over, poor defense lawyering, weak prosecution facts. And if you think about it, they all kind of make sense. So these there aren't a whole lot of other facts. The police or prosecutors don't turn over the evidence that is known to them. And the defendant doesn't have good lawyering as a result is unable to really do the full investigation, is not in possession of facts that would even be questionable. And as a result, these cases end up in a conviction. But apart from that, it's really the combination of all of these factors. It's not simply, oh, all we got to do is solve false confessions. No, it's the combination of these things together. And so... um, I get asked oftentimes by reporters, well, you know, what's the answer here? What what things should we be doing? And I always have to give this completely unsatisfying answer, and that is, it depends. It depends. Are we more interested in preventing the innocent from being arrested and indicted, or are we more interested in preventing the innocent once they're indicted from getting convicted? Because it's these multiple factors that work in concert. So really, Those seven to ten factors that we identify in our study—they all require attention, not simply one of them.
0: You know, I'm—I'm not. I guess I'm not surprised. You know, I mean by your by the findings, um, the 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 cases that we've gone through, most wrongful convictions have a multitude of the of the things going on. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking for your list here. But, you know, the ones that I – it's shocking. I mean, I just watched Just Mercy with my daughter. Have you seen that movie yet? Yes, I have. Fabulous movie, right? Mm Mm-hmm. They had bad – they had a bad lineup. They had a bad jailhouse snitch. They had forced confessions. They had faulty science. They had bad prosecutors, bad cops, bad judges. I mean, they had it all. And the cases that I'm looking at have it all, too. I mean, and I can't believe how many jailhouse snitches there are out there. I mean, I didn't, you know, I'm a, I've been a lawyer 28 years. I, I, I didn't know that that was a, th- like, a, like these people are making a a, a career out of this. Um, the bad policing, the, the judges and the prosecutors being in cahoots, not testing the right DNA or, you know, ignoring DNA. It's, I mean, it's, after a while, after looking at so many of these cases, it's like, oh, of course, of course there is. Of course there is. This isn't a rare, these aren't rare things.
1: They're, they're really not. So you know, we're right now in this presidential election. What are we fighting over? About 1%, 2% of the vote, maybe 3%. We know that these cases happen at the very least uh, 1.5% of the time. They may happen a whole lot more. And indeed, we really don't know often that they happen. They may happen upwards of 7% of the time. So that's not an absolutely blue moon situation. That's thousands of innocent defendants each year who can be convicted. And I would say also for those who say, well, look, okay, so 95% of the time the system works. Why are we focusing on all of these problems? Why all this attention? And I would say you know, we can talk about putting innocent people behind bars, we can talk also about tax dollars that get wasted on these cases. But apart from all of that, how many of us are opposed to professionalizing the criminal justice system, even if it doesn't lead to wrongful convictions? Really, should we not be concerned about people making wrongful identifications? Should we not be concerned about false confessions? Should we not be concerned about tunnel vision? Of course we should, because what we seek is a professional criminal justice system. I think we all want that. We all want an efficient, effective, and fair criminal justice system. And that's why we ought to be focusing attention on these problems.
0: I really liked your analogy, you know, um, because we're not talking about hundreds, we're talking about tens of thousands. And I've seen estimates of over, you know, Hundreds of thousands of people sitting in our jails and prisons, awaiting trial, you know, wrongfully convicted, and and hoping to get someone's attention to get them out. Um, and uh, I, I don't think anybody, I don't care what political affiliation you're with, um, wants to see wants to see that. And and you know, and I I don't know if you track this, but in your study, I mean, prosecutors and and bad cops, bad prosecutors, bad judges. You ever seen them held accountable?
1: Rarely. So for example, on the Brady violations where we know that they're supposed to turn over exculpatory evidence and they don't, they almost never get held accountable for this. Uh, I, I don't know that I've seen more than one or two judges held accountable. But again, I—I I, at least in my work, most of these cases are not people of evil intent. Most of the time, It's people of goodwill making errors that they don't intend. And that, to me, is a much bigger problem than people of bad intention, because it happens much more often without people understanding it. And let's go back to that tens of thousands of people sitting behind bars who are innocent. Let's also remember that if there's someone there who's innocent, there is someone who is guilty, who's oftentimes out on the street. These wrongful conviction cases make us less safe as a community um, and as a nation. And they cost us a lot of money each year in tax dollars. So whatever effort that we put into rectifying these will come back to us in spades in safer communities and lower tax dollars.
0: Agree, agree, violent agreement. We need to fix this problem. We need to keep talking. We need to have these conversations. So tell me what you're teaching at ASU. I mean, is this the type of stuff you're talking about at ASU? What are, what are the classes you're teaching there right now?
1: Well, so I'm the director of a school, which means uh, I don't teach that much anymore. But when I do, actually, I teach the introductory criminal justice class because I think it is essential for our undergraduates to get a full introduction uh, to the system from someone who can give them uh, kind of the, the perspective here. But I also teach a seminar on wrongful convictions, uh, and it is uh, fascinating each year how students' eyes become open to some of the problems in the criminal justice system. And I think one of the things we need to do when we're exposing people to the problems is not disillusion them to the system either. The system works more often than it does not, but it's got some problems that need to be addressed. So people of goodwill... Who uh, want to make a difference? This is the kind of thing to be focusing your attention on.
0: You know, I'm struggling to formulate this question because you brought up—you know—you really did, Dr. Gold, bring up a really interesting point today. Because all the cases that I have on the show and all the talks I have, there's—it's—they're all rampant with intentional wrongful conduct from the police, detective, prosecutors. You know what I'm saying? The, the mm-hmm. whole—that's what I'm getting that's what gets to my desk. That's what gets to our podcast. But just the, just the, 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 mistakes don't, right. And those are the ones that I'm wondering, I don't, I don't, I can't, I, the question is, is will come as I keep talking. Um, but you know, it's the, the mistakes the the, the non-intentional mistakes that are those the people I mean, are those the people still sitting in prison? Are those the people not being able to get attention from a media outlet or an innocence clinic to free them or help free them? Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, because there's tons of bad lawyering going on and, and you feel because of all these innocent people getting out of prison every day, you feel like it's all intentional. So, but you're saying that that is probably a very low percentage.
1: So we don't know exactly what percentage it is, but I think the intentional ones are not the majority of these cases. They are, as you say, they're the ones that get the attention. Because look, if I tell you the story of Earl Washington Jr. where you're dealing with a defendant of low IQ and a sheriff's deputy who's fairly certain that the guy didn't do it, uh, is interrogating him and asking him to describe what was being worn. By the defendant by himself when he did the crime, and they hold up the uh, the shirt that belonged to someone else in front of him, and he's able to describe it. That's much more exciting a case to talk about than if I give you that case of the other person out of Virginia, where the woman is upstairs looking down at a streetlight uh, to a guy under a streetlight, and just makes a bad call. That's not as exciting. It's not as, I mean, let's, let's use the word that uh, gets used uh, in the, the descriptions of these cases. It's, it's not sexy. It doesn't bring eyeballs. So that's why I think we spend more time on the intentional ones. But the intentional ones are also what brought the innocence projects to the, the table and got them uh, to find these cases of wrongful conviction. Now we need to be focusing more attention on the cases that may not be as easy to identify. And in this regard, I want to give some credit to the prosecutor's offices across the country who have created what's called conviction integrity units, where some of these offices are going back and looking at cases they prosecuted to see if maybe they made some mistakes because they don't want to be responsible for an innocent person in prison, And because they want to learn from these cases to prevent them. And we're seeing them in some of the more progressive prosecutor offices, some of the ones who are willing to really follow best practices. And so I think they deserve a shout out for the recognition that there are problems and for their willingness to go look at these cases.
0: Fascinating. Um, Really good stuff. uh, Dr. Gold, if, you know, in your seminar, you know the 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 four people that I've interviewed, the four exonerees, as bitter as they could be, as hateful as they could be. These are just such beautiful people who want to share their story, who are grateful that some that they got a second chance. So if you ever need people to speak to your class, please reach out to me. It is impactful. I've, I've made my kids meet, uh, watch these episodes, and it just to know what's going on in this world. It's it's important. And I commend you for doing these seminars. And, and uh, so if you need any help, please reach out.
1: Thank you. Uh, we, we have uh, a number of those exonerees in Arizona who are oftentimes uh, grateful and uh, willing to, to talk. And, and you, you know, you, no, you noted something that uh, I find so fascinating. If you, know, if you were in prison for 25 years for something you didn't do, would you come out um, uh not angry i don't think i would i think no. i'd come out pissed as hell uh, and I, I i am just astounded by the sense of graciousness and humanity that many of the exonerees have which i know i would not have myself
0: absolutely not uh, um i, I mean well, you, you know just the thought of it is just horrific and uh um I I just, I love, I love digging in. I love that that people are getting relief and that people have to understand that if you witness something, you know, you may not have witnessed what you witnessed, or if you're on a jury, uh, you might not be hearing the whole story. So be skeptical and on and on and on. So we just got to keep telling these stories and educating our our youth and and everybody else in between.
1: I agree with you. And I commend you for the work you're doing here. So thanks for shining a light on these cases.
0: It's our pleasure, Dr. Gold. Thanks for being with us. Enjoy Phoenix. Enjoy the weather out there. And uh, Thank you.
1: Uh, and when you come out to uh, Tucson, make a stop in, in Phoenix, we'll show you around.
0: Oh, uh, I'd love it. I'd love it. I'm going to take you up on it.
1: All right. Thanks again for having me.
0: Have a good day. Dr. John Gould from the Arizona State University with a very impressive resume, a book, Studies on Wrongful Convictions. Please share this episode with anybody you think needs to see it. Like the episode. Please subscribe to Open Mic so we can know that you're watching and listening. And uh, just thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Have a great day.